at Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 to 15. And we're on lesson number 44, is it, in your books? 44, lesson number 44. Perfect Prayer Pattern, Part 2. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, how awesome is the privilege that we have to call you our Father. May we never take that for granted after studying this lesson and realizing what an awesome privilege it is. Father, I would pray that as we study your word that we would, through it, lift up your name, that we would hallow thy name. We pray, Lord, that as we study your word and as we grow in Christ's likeness, that we would cause your kingdom to expand here, not only within us in our hearts, but as we have outreach to those around us, that other souls would come into your kingdom through this ministry and through each of us, Lord, that we would be light and salt for you. Father, I pray that you would give us now this today our daily spiritual bread so that our souls might find their nutrition. We not only need physical food, but we need our spiritual food. And, and as we open up the bread of life, I just pray that you would bless it to our bodies and our souls so that we might better serve you. Now, Lord, may you be exalted in all that is said, for we pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay. When the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples and all future followers of him a lesson on how to pray effectively and fervently and properly, he gave the most perfect and the most extraordinarily comprehensive outline for prayer that has ever been conceived. And the more I study this, the more perfect I see that it is. And it can be outlined in so many just ultimate variety of ways that it can be outlined. It begins, as we saw last week, with the foundational awareness that the sovereign king of the universe is our father dearest. Or how is it said in Aramaic? Abba, father, our daddy. With whom, because of our inherited sonship, through Christ, we can have a personal and warmly intimate relationship. Then from this intimate relationship with our Father flow six petitions. The first three, which we looked at last week, concern the glory of God. And they are distinguished by the word thy, if you can see that up there in red. And the second three petitions concern our own well-being. And they are distinguished by the word us. Prayer should begin with God's interests, not our own. And I had to catch myself so many times this week that I would just start praying. Um, and then I'd say, no, I need to glorify you first, Lord. I need to hallow your name first. And so I'm so glad that I have been reminded of this. Always he should come first. His name, his kingdom, and his will. We have no right to ask for anything that would dishonor his name or delay his kingdom, or disturb his will here on earth. When we begin with petitions for God's interest and for God's glory, we will sort of naturally just weed out any further requests, which, not, which you know, if answered the way that we would sometimes like them to be answered, which might not glorify him or might not assist in the furtherance of his kingdom or be in accordance with his determined, his desired, or his demanded will. 
And did you look at that in the notes? Was that last week's lesson or is it this week's lesson? Is it this week's? Okay, you'll learn. I'm not going to go into... Sometimes I just avoid things that are in the books because I, you can read and study those on your own. But do look up the difference, please, as you read your notes and try to understand the difference between God's determined will. That's what he has determined from eternity past, and it will come to pass. It's settled. It will come to pass. And then there's his desired will. He doesn't always get his desired will. It is his desire that no man should perish, but that all would come to repentance. But yet, does that happen? No. Actually, Satan's desired will is more fulfilled in this world right now than God's desired will. And then there is, is his demanded will, which is for Christians only. There are certain things he demands that we do. And that's, that's basically the difference. But read up on that further. So we have no right to ask for anything that would not glorify him, that would not further his kingdom, and that would not be in accord with any of his three types of will. Furthermore, when we remind ourselves that God is our Father when we pray, when we remember that we are part of God's family, part of the household of faith, the whole body of Christ, then we will also weed out, sort of naturally, any petitions that might harm others in God's family. If we are truly praying in the will of God, the answer will be a blessing to all of God's people in one way or another. The whole realm of life is captured, therefore, in this beautiful rainbow of these six very simple... You have to admit they're simple. They're just worded so simply, aren't they? And yet they're so deeply profound, these prayer petitions, because these six simple petitions take into account every single need of the human soul. Great things, little things, spiritual things, as we'll see today, material things, inward things outward things, the whole realm of life in those six simple petitions. Nothing was forgotten at all in this prayer. And if we use it, therefore, as our model pattern for our own prayers, it is going to exceedingly enrich our lives. Now, in this second half of our two-part study on the disciples' prayer, or what are some of the other names that you guys came up with? Somebody shout out a name. Perfect prayer pattern. Well, that was the name I used. What are some of the names you came up with? Didn't you have to? The Believer's Prayer. Model Prayer. Anybody come up with a Child of God's Prayer? Or the Children's Prayer, you could even call it. All right, well, for our sake, we're going to call it the Disciples' Prayer. Um, we're going to consider today, last week we looked at the first three petitions. Today we're going to look at the last three petitions, which take us from praying for God's glory to praying for ourselves. Now, it's really interesting to realize that the fourth, fifth, and sixth prayer requests, the last three prayer requests of this model prayer, touch on our need for present provision for our bodies, our daily bread, on past pardon for our soul's need for forgiveness, and on our future protection, spiritual protection, from evil. So in these three petitions, we find past, present, and future covered. We find body, soul, and spirit covered. These are requests for our physical needs, our mental and emotional needs, and our spiritual needs 
covers it all. Three simple petitions. It's also interesting to think about the fact that the fourth petition, which has to do with our daily bread, um, symbolize, and four in the, in the Bible, how many people remember what the number four symbolizes in Scripture? Earth, exactly, earth. Like there's four corners of the earth and four directions and all kinds of different things um, that have to do with four when it comes to the earth. And we are of the earth, are we not? We are physical, and thus we need our daily bread. And that's the fourth petition about our physical bodies and our daily bread. The number five, you all know, symbolizes what? Grace. And it is only by God's grace that we receive the forgiveness of our sin debts. Then the number six symbolizes, and you all know this one, man. And the nature of man is inclined to succumb to temptation to do evil. So what is the sixth petition for? To deliver us from evil. We need God's continual guidance and deliverance to keep us from succumbing to our own sin nature to do evil. So that's interesting as well. The three petitions, I see you're all writing this down. Have you finished? Can I go on? I'll put it back up later if you want it. The three petitions are supplied by all three members of the Holy Trinity. Our physical needs are supplied by the kindness of God the Father. Our sin debts are forgiven by the, through the mediation work accomplished on the cross by God the Son. And we are delivered from the evil one by the gracious, protecting work of God the Holy Spirit. So we also have all three members of the Trinity involved in these last three prayer requests. Okay, let's look at verses 11 to 15 now, read them, and then we'll begin by discussing the first request, which is right, uh, present provision for daily bread. Starting in verse 11, Jesus went on in the prayer, and he said, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then he went on and talked about the forgiveness petition. He said, For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Wow, that sounds serious, doesn't it? This uh, fourth petition, I can't talk this morning. Fourth petition that we're going to start with about daily bread, which is the first of the second set, so it's, it's uh, the fourth, seems almost to be too simple, doesn't it? It just says, give us this day our daily bread. In fact, um, it seemed to some of the early church fathers that it was too simple. Like I just said, it, it, was, too, it was so selfish, they thought, and materialistic to uh, ask for something as basic as one's material needs. You know, this beautiful prayer, if you think about where we've gone, we've just been talking about hallowing God's name, his kingdom coming, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This, ta- this prayer takes us from the exalted level of glorifying God up in heaven, the creator, the sustainer of the entire universe, who is planning his eternal kingdom, to all of a sudden 
a request for our daily bread. You know, it just seemed to those early church fathers that this was too selfish and too me-oriented. And so what they did was they rejected its clear meaning. And they sort of reinterpreted it to mean that Jesus was teaching that, that what we are to pray for is not our physical provision, but they spiritualized the bread to mean the bread of communion somehow or another. They thought that that just sounded more spiritual. However, in spite of their interpretation, the Lord's meaning is really very clear here. He wants us to pray for our physical provisions. The bread speaks of those things which are the necessities of life. And not just bread, you know, but, but those things that it takes for us to live, to survive. Shelter, you know, food, water, clothing. Things, whether large or small, that are necessary for maintaining our lives and our health and the well-being of our families. It is not a prayer petition, however, as is all frequently, uh, happens all too frequently. It is not a prayer petition that is to be misused. It is not carte blanche to ask God for everything in the mall. You've heard the saying, it's, it's a prayer for our needs and not for our greeds for our needs and not for our greeds. The, the Bible says, my God shall supply all your needs. In other words, it's a prayer for bread, not for dessert. But oh, how we love dessert. <laughs> Too many prayers of God's people are for what they really do not need. And sometimes it's really good that God doesn't answer some of those prayers. God wants to lo- us to look to him daily, doesn't he? He does day by day. I think it actually says over in Luke's account of this of the disciples' prayer, give us day by day our bread, something like that. So God wants us, the Lord wants us to foster, he wants to foster in us a daily dependence on him. And in this, there is no other request in the prayer that is in such contrast with, here we go, with the direction of the world today. Most people spend their lifetimes developing their own independence. That's their goal. They want to be independent. So um, they're reaching for their own financial material security. Now that's not to say that there's anything wrong with planning for the future and for rainy days, but when it is one's all-encompassing goal in life, then yes, it is wrong. You see, whether we are wealthy or whether we are just barely making ends meet, God wants us to depend on him and to know that every good gift and every perfect gift comes from where? From above. It comes from him. Even, even the richest Donald Trumps and Bill Gateses in the world and the most hardworking person in the world, whether he realizes it or not, owes everything that he has to God. Although most of them take their, their credit for themselves, don't they? But our very life, you know, the the very breath that we take, our health, our possessions, uh, the earth we live on, our talents, our opportunities, all originate from resources that God has created and that he has made available to men. Of ourselves, we can do absolutely nothing. And those men taking credit for what they have accomplished, 
God to, could just take their lives in the next second and say, Thou fool. We find in this invitation um, to come to God with our prayers for daily needs, we find in this that he cares for even the simple and the ordinary day-to-day things in our lives. Nothing is too small, nothing is too trivial to him to care about. I've heard people that have asked me or have thought in their minds and have expressed that to me that some things are just too small to ask God for and that um, they would just rather wait you know, not ask him because they don't want to bother him with the small things, so they just pray for the big things in their life. Is that biblical? No, it isn't. God cares about even the small things. He doesn't tell us to only approach him if we have something big to ask of him and and to just keep the little things to ourselves and not ask him and bother him. He is the one who took infants into his arms and small children when his own disciples would have done what? sent them away. He is the one who showed his special love on those who others had outcasted from society. You know, the lepers and the lame and the handicapped and the diseased. He is the one who knows and cares about even how many hairs are on our head and who knows when even a sparrow falls to the ground. Does God care about details? He does. He's the one, when we're going to hear at this creation seminar, who, um, down to the most minute details. I mean, he even put the, the, sh- uh, the shutter effect on the lizard's eyelid. Yes, God cares about details. The Lord does not say that we have to just pray for the big things and forget about the little things. And he did not say that we can only approach um, him when we have lifted ourselves to some kind of a spiritual level above the daily things in life. In fact, his greatness lies in the fact of his willingness to descend to meet us where we are. When when we come to him with our little daily requests for physical needs, we actually are honoring him because we are demonstrating his fatherhood over us. When we, you know, that's an honor to him that we look to him as a father. The better you know your own father... Some of our fathers are gone now, but the better you knew your own father and his character and his person, the better you knew how to ask him for things, right? I mean, there were certain things. I knew my father. There were certain things I would never ask him for because I knew he would blow up. (laughs) There'd be no way that that request would be granted. There were other things I knew I could ask him for, and that would not be a problem. And this is getting to know his will. And the same thing is true. The better we know our Heavenly Father's character, the more we will be lined up with his will, and we will know what to ask him for and what not to ask him for. So when we ask him for the little things, the physical needs, not the greeds, not the dessert, but the bread, um, he is honored because we're demonstrating that he is indeed our Father, our Abba Daddy. And we also demonstrate our dependence on him and our trust in him when we do that. There is most likely also a spiritual side to this fourth petition. So in a sense, I believe that the uh, early church fathers were right um, in wanting to spiritualize it. I do believe it's more physical, but there is an aspect where you can look at the spiritual end of this too. Jesus did refer to himself as the bread of life, and he did 
it did say that he was the bread of heaven which came down. He is the, uh, he is the spiritual fulfillment of the daily manna which fed the Israelites when they were wandering in the wilderness. It's interesting to realize that, that Jesus only used one symbol to, to describe the eternal state for those who put their faith in him. And he used that one symbol on a number of occasions. He spoke of the eternal state as a great and joyous feast. So there is a sense in which the Lord Jesus is telling us, his children, that through prayer we can grasp the glorious bread of eternity and feast upon it day by day, daily, until that final day when we will feast with the bread of life himself. He said, I am the living bread which cometh down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever, John six fifty one. So I would say that when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we should think about asking not only for physical bread, but we should also think about asking for our spiritual bread. I don't know about you, but I need my daily spiritual bread, you know, the nourishment I receive from my time spent in God's word, almost, well, actually more than I need my, my physical bread. Um, so let's remember that when we say, you know, give us this day our daily bread or term, you know, put it in your own words, however you ask for it. Don't only pray for your physical bread, but pray for your spiritual bread as well. So Jesus, who is the bread of life, is the one who links the kingdom of God with my daily bread. Isn't he the, the ladder, the mediator between earth and heaven? Okay, let's look now at debts forgiven, past pardon. And this is where the Lord said, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors in verse 12 of Matthew 6. What is man's greatest problem? Sin, absolutely. Our greatest problem is sin. It is sin that separates us from God, at least before we were saved. It is sin that is man's greatest enemy, and it has contaminated absolutely every human being who has ever lived or who will ever live, except one, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is sin that brought trouble into this world by the way of what men call natural disasters. Doesn't that just get your goat when you listen to the news and they talk about the earthquakes and the tsunamis and the, and the hurricanes and they always say, Mother Nature. Hmm, nothing Mother Nature about it. <laughs> it's Father, yeah, Father, Father God. Um, but it's sin. You know, if you ask why do these tragedies happen, it's because of sin. Sin has entered into this world and we live in a sin-cursed world. Before the fall, there were no tsunamis, there were no earthquakes, there were no hurricanes. It is sin which has brought diseases and illnesses of every kind and which has brought every conceivable form of evil and wickedness into the, this world. Sin is the cause of all man's sorrows and tragedies and trials and miseries. I hate it when people blame God for all these things. It's not his fault that we are sinners. We're the ones who chose to disobey him. Sin is the cause of crime. Sin is the cause of Lies and, and scandals and covetousness and murder and adultery and divorce and, and pain and heartache and guilt. It is also the moral and spiritual disease for which man on his own has no cure. 
What are the ultimate effects of sin? Death and damnation, eternal damnation. Because man's greatest problem is sin, therefore his greatest need is for forgiveness. Forgiveness has been provided. That's the good news. The bad news is sin leads to death and damnation. But the good news is that God has provided uh, forgiveness through the substitutionary sacrifice of his son. And for those who have acknowledged that sacrifice on their behalf for their own sins and have trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, God forgives their sin debt. Now you see up here on the transparency that sin is pictured many, many different ways in the Bible. It is pictured as dirt because we have to be washed from it. The Bible says, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. So it's pictured as dirt. It's pictured as disease, and I primarily think of leprosy, which is a picture of sin. It's pictured as darkness. We've been called out of darkness into his kingdom of marvelous light. It's pictured as death. And you hath he made alive who were dead in your trespasses. And it's also here pictured as a debt. Sin is a moral and spiritual God, a debt to God that must be paid And I think it's interesting, again, if you didn't get that, you can come up later and copy. It's interesting that Matthew is the one who calls sin a debt or debts. Now, Luke doesn't. In his uh, parallel passage where he gives the Lord's, the disciples' prayer, he calls it sins. Forgive us our sins. But why do you think Matthew referred to them as debts? What was he he was a tax collector. His mind was on debts, wasn't it? Credit and debt and all that sort of thing. So I just thought that was interesting, how, the, how his pers- their personalities come through in their writings. True belief, we, we have a debt that we could never pr- pay, so Christ paid it for us. True believers in the Lord Jesus have been forgiven the ultimate penalty of sin, which is death and damnation. Now, you might ask the question, well, since this prayer was given to believers, it was given originally to the disciples, and we know that they were believers, and of course it's a prayer for us to also pray or use as a model for prayer, then why, for those of us who have already experienced God's once-for-all judicial forgiveness, why are we then asked for God to forgive our debts? In, um, In verse 12. Seems kind of strange, doesn't it? I mean, we're, we're already saying our Father, so it's only for believers, this prayer, and then we say, forgive us our debts. Well, he's already forgiven us our debts. Because we still live in, a, in fallen body, bodies, <clears throat> we struggle, each and every one of us, with the old man that is within us still. We have a new nature, but we still have to live with the old man, <clears throat> with um, the, the, the flesh, we're still living in, in fallen human bodies. And so, therefore, we still fall into sin. Therefore, we need what is called in your books, and you can read more about this in the books, and I, this is my own term. You can call it whatever you want, but we need foot-washing forgiveness. We frequently need to confess our sins to God, who is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, as it says in 1 John 1, 9. We need 
his forgiveness just about really on a daily basis, we need his forgiveness not as our judge. That's how we needed his forgiveness originally when we were still sinners and we needed his forgiveness as our judge. But now, on a daily basis, we need his forgiveness as our father. Our feet, so to speak, our feet get dirty as we walk through this sinful world. And the truth of the matter is that from time to time, we do indeed get dirty feet. Do you get dirty feet? I get dirty feet. I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't need to confess my sins and He is faithful and just to forgive them. But I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't have uh, a a bad attitude or, or, I'm not going to say all, but or a bad motive or um, a sin of omission. That gets all of us. You know, we should have done something that we didn't do. Every day we, we sin. And so we need to keep ourselves in fellowship with our Father. So this is... um, foot-washing forgiveness, and it's also uh, to keep us in fellowship. It's, it's not, we're not speaking of faith, faith salvation. We're speaking of fellowship sanctification. So it's a, it's a difference there. I hope you can understand that. If you can't, go and look, read, it, read the books and see if you can get it, and then you can see all the differences I have up here for you on the transparency. Remember the, um, oh, it also says, by the way, if anybody thinks that they don't sin, just because they've become a Christian. And there are people who, who believe that way. But it says in, in 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And he's speaking there to believers. Remember the Lord's foot-washing episode with his, deci- his disciples? I know you do. That is a picture of the forgiveness that God provides for those who are already saved. But they need repeated cleansing of the daily surface contamination from sin that we experience as we walk through this life. He said that he, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. You don't need to be washed all over again because you have been forgiven and saved originally when you ask Christ to be your Savior. But you do need to just have your feet washed, so to speak, for those daily sins. What is sad to think about is that the, the disciples' prayer is recited mindlessly, We've talked about this in the past, but it's recited mindlessly thousands of times every week, and it is one of the most abused portions of the scripture, both in and out of the church. Not only is it abused through heartless, mindless repetition, where people just say it and don't even think about it, but it is abused in the fact that it is prayed by people who, number one, have no intention of wanting to do God's will on earth as it is in heaven. How many people you think say, um, uh, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, and have no intention of, do, of doing God's desired or demanded will? Many, many people praying that and have no intention of doing God's will. And number two, they do not see themselves in the least bit guilty before a holy God. The only ones who can properly pray using this prayer model are those who understand that they are debtors to God. So this fifth petition, and remember five is a call to God's grace, 
it is really an indication to us that we are to do two things. First of all, we are to ask God to forgive us, you know, just like the petition for daily bread, we are to do this on a daily basis to forgive us each day so that we stay in fellowship with him. Um, And second, we are to also forgive those who have wronged us, those who are our debtors. We find that the Lord really gives a prerequisite for receiving forgiveness. And that's, that's a very profound truth, isn't it? Simple but very sobering. The, the principle is if we have forgiven others who have sinned against us or offended us, then we will be forgiven. If we refuse to be forgiving, neither will we be forgiven by our Heavenly Father. Now remember, when we say that, we have to remember that this is a prayer for those who are already saved. These are, this is a prayer for those who are already believers. It's a prayer for those who are already forgiven and saved for all of eternity. So the forgiveness that he is speaking about here is... Um, is the forgiveness we will not receive. It's, it's not the, the forgiveness for salvation, all right? It's the forgiveness that we ourselves um, want to receive for our daily foot washing sins. But we won't receive that forgiveness if we refuse to, to forgive others. Not speaking, just make sure you understand, it's not speaking about salvation forgiveness here. Remember, we have already been forgiven by him as our judge. But our unforgiving spirit toward others would affect our fellowship with him as our father. Now, just in case anyone might have misunderstood what he was saying here in verse 12 when he was telling his disciples how to pray, he reiterated, this is the only thing he reiterated after he finished the prayer. If you look at verses 14 and 15, he goes on to say after he concluded the prayer he says for if ye forgive men their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if ye forgive not men their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses if you look at this whole prayer in the aftermath of those two verses we find that the word forgive is given six times six times in just four verses Remember, we said that because sin is our greatest problem, forgiveness is man's greatest need. Man's number six, right? So six times we find the word forgiveness. We, need not, only, we not only need forgiveness for sins of salvation, faith forgiveness, but we need forgiveness for fellowship, foot-washing forgiveness, and we also need forgiveness so that our prayers will be answered. It says in Psalm 66:18, "If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me." Talking about communication with God, talking about prayer. It says in Ecclesiastes that if we forgive our neighbor the wrong that he has done, then our sins, our sins will be pardoned when we pray. Unforgiving hearts make our prayers die right on our lips. They don't get any higher than our lips if we have unforgiving hearts. One of the characteristics of a true kingdom citizen is that he or she is going to be forgiving. They're going to be merciful. Remember the beatitude 
virtue of mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The one who has a a merciless, unforgiving heart will receive neither forgiveness nor mercy from their heavenly Father. Remember the man in the parable that the Lord gave in Matthew 18 who had been so mercifully forgiven by his master, his Lord, for 10,000 talents, which was a huge amount that he couldn't pay during a whole lifetime. He couldn't pay that off. But he had his master had just forgiven him of that whole debt. But then he turned around and he refused to give his own servant for to forgive his own servant of a, a debt for only a hundred denarii, which was relatively small. And then he was called by his own master, the one who had forgiven him. He said, "You wicked servant! I forgave thee all that debt. Shouldn't this not thou also have had compassion?" on thy fellow servant and what happened to him he was handed over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed and guess what he could never pay it back especially couldn't have paid it back in a lifetime of working but he especially couldn't pay it back if he was in jail and couldn't work James 2.13 tells us that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful themselves actually A merciful, forgiving spirit toward those who have done us wrong is a great indicator of whether or not you are truly saved. If you want to give yourself a self-examination test, am I really saved, Then, then examine yourself in this area. A saved person will be a forgiving person, will be a merciful person. Now, this doesn't mean that his or her forgiveness will come immediately at the time of the offense. Sometimes, you know, it takes a little while for that forgiveness to come. But the true Christian will be able in his heart or her heart to eventually, you know, struggle with that issue and eventually be able to forgive the one who has offended them or, you know, sinned against them. The true believer will be convicted about forgiving and will pray for the Spirit to help her, him, in this area. Whereas the one who adamantly, have you ever met anybody like that? The one who adamantly says, I'll never, I'll never, as long as I live, I will never forgive that person. I will hold it against him forever, and I do not ever care if I talk to him again or her. I don't care if I ever see her or hear from her. That's it. That's the individual who gives evidence that he is not a Christian. If you hear somebody talking like that, And they've had a little bit of, I mean, maybe it didn't happen that day. Give them a couple weeks or something, a couple months. But if they're talking like that later on the road and they say they're a Christian, show them this passage. There's no way. And that sounds strong. But when the grace of God truly comes into our hearts, it makes us forgiving. When we realize how much he has forgiven us and what we really are inside, then why would we hold something against somebody else? So when we're true Christians, it makes us merciful. A good check on whether or not we have been truly forgiven with salvation forgiveness, then, is uh, whether or not we will forgive. If I refuse to even consider the possibility of forgiving somebody, then the only reason would be because I am outside of grace and I myself have not experienced God's forgiveness. 
And these are words that really need to be heard by many who profess themselves to be religious and who seem to know all the answers to different Bible questions, who attend church regularly, and who outwardly lead clean lives, but who hold a death-grip grudge against someone, maybe a former spouse, maybe a current spouse, uh, or uh, maybe a parent, or another relative, maybe a business associate. I don't know. But if you are nourishing in your heart any kind of hatred towards someone and an unforgiving spirit, someone who has wronged you or you thought wronged you, you know, maybe they really didn't, but you perceived it that way. If you are hanging on to your animosity toward another person, maybe even somebody in your own church family, then you had better really seriously take a close examination of your true heart condition. This uh, forgiveness of debts petition not only helps us to understand whether or not we are truly saved, but if we are believers and have no doubt about it, then it also helps us to have a gauge on our own spiritual health. You know, even if we're believers, this is a gauge for us. There is, in with all, there is within all of us a tendency to be more sensitive and more concerned about the wrongs that are done to us than the wrongs that we have done to others. Often, whether we think um, about... Often what we think about others, when they are hurt, you know, if somebody else is hurt because of something I've done, my tendency might be to think um, that, oh, they are so sensitive, and oh, that is so silly. I didn't mean that. They should have known I didn't mean that, or they read between the lines, or whatever. You know, I, I can so easily make an excuse for when I have offended a sister in Christ or a brother in Christ. But boy, watch out if they offend me. All of a sudden, all those excuses vanish for them. I have no excuses for what they did, but I certainly have a lot for when I do it. It's not healthy to withhold forgiveness. It's not healthy spiritually, and it isn't healthy physically either. For one thing, unforgiveness destroys relationships, and often they are the relationships that we value the most. Isn't this true? Our Kent Hughes says this, he says, quote, An unforgiving spirit brings isolation and a compounding of our bitterness, and sooner or later it shows itself. Self-pity finds its root here. Then comes depression as an unforgiving offended self turns inward. We become even more fault-finding and hurt and unforgiving and then more depressed and emotionally unhealthy. Not only do friendships sour, but our own healthy relationship with God becomes insipid. The heavens seem as brass to the unforgiving heart, and they practically are so. We suffer from spiritual ill health. On the other hand, the health benefits of a forgiving spirit are incalculable. And to that I say, amen. If you have a forgiving spirit... You are healthy. You are healthy inside and out. I had a grandmother who couldn't forgive her husband, my grandfather, and she she did exactly what I just read. She turned inward, and she had self-pity, and she had depression, and she just dealt with that the whole rest of her life just because she couldn't forgive. It is so sad to see that happen. 
when we are able to forgive, we are being like both the Father and the Son. What did Jesus say when he was being nailed to the cross? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. To err is human, right? But to forgive is divine. You know, we are never more godly. We are never more beautiful. We are never more healthy than when we forgive. Because that is when we are most like God. It says in the Bible, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. To forgive is, to, is divine. But the flip side of that truth, as you see I have up here, is that to not forgive is devilish. All right, quickly let's look at the future protection petition where he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, some people say that's two prayer requests, but you can take it that way, and then there would be seven petitions, and some people do, and I don't have a big issue with that. In other words, lead us, into, lead us not in temptation is one, and deliver us from evil is another. So they make seven petitions all together. But the other ones are all divided by the word and. And this one isn't. This one is given together, and it's not joined by and. So most of the Bible commentaries I studied say that this is one petition. I, before we get into it, I want you to see, and this is beautiful, so I, it's not in your notes, but I hope you can get a grasp on this. That the, uh, the, the, the petitions here of this prayer are like a ladder. All right. Remember Jacob's dream? Later on, Jesus Christ comes into the picture during his earthly ministry, and he says, I am the ladder. He is the one and only link between earth and heaven. He is the one and only mediator between man and God. Well, this prayer is like a ladder, and I want you to see how its various rungs, the rungs of a ladder, connect heaven with earth. Okay? First of all, where did we start? With our Father, which art, where? In heaven, whose name, you know, is hallowed, who is sanctified, who is set apart, whose name is to be hallowed in our life. So we started with our Father in heaven at the t on the top rung of the ladder. The second rung concerns God's kingdom coming down to earth. So we go down a rung. Thy kingdom come. The third rung concerns his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. The fourth request is for the staples of this earthly life. Right down here on planet earth, we need daily bread. And then the next rung is a request for forgiveness of our debts, taking us down to the issue of what? Sin. And then the sixth request, finally the last rung of the ladder, deals with temptation and with Evil. Actually, the word, the Greek word for evil can be either evil or the evil one, speaking of Satan, the evil one. Um, deliver us from the evil one. You could actually read it. And with our meditation of God, who God is, our Father in heaven, to who we are, his sinful children, down to who the evil one is, the tempter and the one from whom we need deliverance. So I told you. How many different ways you can look at this prayer is just unbelievable. There's such a great depth to it. Well, as we consider the sixth petition, we may wonder why Jesus would tell us to pray 
for God not to do something he never would do. What does it say? Lead us not into temptation. Why would we ask, why would Jesus tell us to ask God to, to not do something he never would do? I think I used a double negative, but you know what I'm talking about. The Bible is clear when it tells us that God does not, not tempt any man. James 1.13 says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. On the other hand, James also tells us that we who are Christians should rejoice when temptations come in, or trials come into our lives because we should know that through them our faith is, is tried and we learn greater patience. And through the trials in our life, we, um, we grow spiritually. So if temptation or trials are ultimately good for us because they increase our spiritual maturity, why would we be told to pray, lead us not into temptation? Well, the meaning of the words of this perfect prayer pattern, and I could get into the Greek, but I'm going to skip that for time's sake. But literally, the meaning of this prayer is this. Lead us not into temptation um, is the equivalent of saying, do not allow us to come under the sway of a, t of a temptation or a trial or a testing that will overpower us and cause us to sin. The idea is that we are to ask the Lord to preserve us from those temptations that will bring us under their power and cause us to fall. We cannot help, as we live in this sinful world, we cannot help being exposed to, to temptations. And, and we go through lots of trials. And, and we are not told to pray that we will be spared from all of life's trials. Because, as we just said, it is through life's trials that we grow more Christ-like. It is actually during the trials that we grow the most, isn't it? However, we are to pray that we will be spared from those temptations or those trials that we, in our weak flesh, cannot withstand. We should never, ever be presumptuous and think that we can hold strong where others have failed. No one, no one is above falling. No one is able to yield always, uh, is above yielding to every single temptation in all of its various forms. And this was Peter's problem, wasn't it? Remember how he had just hours before his fall, when he denied the Lord three times, and with profanity, awful profanity. Right before that, he had boasted presumptuously to Jesus that although all those other guys might forsake him, he was a real man. He would never forsake the Lord. So he essentially was bragging that he was more spiritual than the rest of the guys. He was saying to the Lord, you are looking at a real man here. I won't be afraid no matter what. Presumption can take many forms. Our prayers for protection should be saturated, therefore, with the awareness that we are all profoundly weak. And we, each of us, can easily fall. Now, we might have different temptations that we fall to. I might be strong in one area that really causes you a problem. 
And the Lord alone is the one who knows our weaknesses. So we need to pray for his protection in this area. When we honestly consider the power of sin and then consider our own weakness, we should shudder at the dangers all around us daily. So we ask the Lord for his direction. Lead us not into temptation. In other words, if you go the other way with that, it is what we're saying is lead us in the right direction. Lead us in the right way so that we are righteous in our walk. That's the positive form. But we are also, it goes on, we are also to ask him for his deliverance. The last part of this sixth petition is, but deliver us from evil. This prayer, which is a continuation from the first part, lead us not into temptation, is really an appeal to God to place a watch over whatever we see, whatever we hear, whatever we say, whatever we do, wherever we might go, whatever we might run into, that he will protect us from evil. And you never know when you go around a corner what you might run into. Basically, this is laying a claim to the to the promise that says there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to, of escape that ye may be able to bear it. John Butler writes this. He says, quote, Deliver us from evil is not a prayer seeking exemption from trial, but rather it is a prayer seeking escape from transgression. It is not seeking exemption from suffering, but rather it is seeking escape from sin. How often, however, we are more concerned about being deliver delivered from suffering than from sin. When we are sick, we quickly make our requests at church for prayer. But how many folk ask the church to pray for them that they will not sin. Well, that hits home, doesn't it? You know, I think about prayer request time, and you hear about all the cancer and all the illnesses and all the surgeries, but how many times do you hear somebody say, would you just pray that in this trial I will not sin, or in this suffering I will not sin? So include in your daily prayers the petition for God to put a hedge of protection around your family, around your church family, around your pastors and your deacons and your church leaders and your Sunday school teachers. Ask him to put a hedge of protection around the global body of Christ and for yourself and for anyone who you know who is undergoing attacks from the evil one and his emissaries. Pray that they will be delivered from his power and his subtleties. This petition when prayed with heartfelt sincerity, is a key to spiritual health. For we are in a warfare. We are in a spiritual warfare, not only with the weakness of our own flesh and living in this wicked world, but we are in a warfare with um, the prince of this world, Satan. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And then it says in Ephesians 6, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all 
the saints. What does that remind you of? The us part of the prayer or all the saints? Now, the final part of the prayer, and I'm almost ready, is to close, is the doxology. And that is what we find in verse 13 where it says, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This last part of the prayer focuses once again on the preeminence of God, his greatness, and his glory. It speaks of God's sovereignty, doesn't it? God's sovereignty when it says, For thine is the kingdom. He's sovereign king. It speaks of his omnipotence, that he is all-powerful when it says, For thine is the power. And it speaks of his magnificence, his splendor, when it says, um, and, and the glory, for thine is the glory. It speaks of the honor that his person demands. And it also speaks of his eternality when it says forever. So this doxology is really a testimony of who God is, his person. If we don't believe these things about God, then our prayers are just an exercise in pious futility. If you don't believe that his is the kingdom, his is the power, and his is the glory forever, then why even pray? Why even pray? All six of these petitions of this prayer model require a sovereign, omnipotent, magnificent, honorable, eternal God. So it's a beautiful, beautiful way to end the prayer. So this perfect model for our own prayers gives God the praise. Notice both at the beginning of the prayer, when we said, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So it begins with praise for God at the beginning and at the end, doesn't it? And what's sandwiched in between, in the middle? Petitions for us. So the glory of God should be dominant in our prayers. And that makes great sense when we understand that the main objective of our lives is to do what? To glorify God. That's the main objective of our life. You see, prayer is not only to get, it is to give. We are to give God the worship of our praise. Prayer is not just asking, it is also a time of adoration. If you have to cut anything out of your prayers, maybe for time's sake or whatever, I don't know, but if you have to cut out anything, do not cut the praise part of your prayer. Praise should always have a prominent place in our prayers. I'm going to close with this little quote from Warren Wearsby in his book on Matthew. He said, uh, The important thing about prayer is not simply getting an answer, but being the kind of person whom God can trust with an answer. Good quote. All right, let's pray. Father, when I consider this prayer, I realize that it really is all about your son Jesus himself. He was with you in heaven. His name was hallowed by all of the heavenly host of heaven. His, he's the one who brought your kingdom down to earth. He is the one who came to do your will on earth as it is in heaven. He is the one who came to offer us the bread of life. He's the one who came to forgive us of our debts. He is the one who leads us to be able to overcome temptation. 
He is the one who delivered us from evil. So he is the kingdom, and he is the power, and he is the glory forever. And how we love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen.